You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 74, The Munich Agreement Part 6, I Am Altering the Deal. This week, a big thank you goes out to Sam, Joseph, and Pete for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes, plus special member-only episodes released roughly once a month. You can also gain access to these member episodes through Apple Podcast subscriptions. Head on over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members if you wish to find out more. Also, and I don't really do this that often, but shout out to listener Andre for the excellent email. Thank you for listening, and thank you for reaching out with your comments and questions. Uh, They were great, and they were, you know, highly motivating. Back to our story. All of the drama of the previous weeks in September 1938 had led up to the agreement of the Anglo-French proposals by the Czechoslovak government on September 21st, which resulted in the statement that I ended last episode with, quote, we had no other choice because we were left alone. However, that was only step two of the process. The first step had been Chamberlain meeting with Hitler. The second step had been getting the Czechoslovak government to agree to the proposals. And the third step would be another meeting with Hitler to get him to agree to the agreement. At this second meeting, Chamberlain planned to present the Czechoslovak agreement and then gain German acceptance of that agreement, at least verbally. In the best case scenario, this would practically be the end of the entire Sudeten crisis just a rubber stamp on what Chamberlain thought uh, Hitler had already agreed to. You know, there was little left after that, but like political details and actually writing out the treaty and getting everybody to sign it and kind of finalizing and crossing T's and dotting I's. This best case scenario would of course not be the course of events. In fact, Chamberlain's second meeting with Hitler, which we will discuss shortly, would almost be a worst case scenario. And then everything very quickly began to fall apart. During this episode, we will discuss the series of meetings that took place at Bad Gottesberg, but which would result in the Bad Gottesberg Memorandum, which Chamberlain would attempt to gain acceptance for in London before Paris and Prague were also, once again, brought on board. We start the episode back in the Sudeten areas, though, where something very interesting had happened. Things had reverted to something like normal. After Henlein had made his proclamation, calling for an outright and immediate German annexation during the previous week, he'd fled the country, along with several other leading members of the Sudeten German party and some of their more extreme supporters. 
This had been done because, frankly, they were concerned that they were about to be arrested. When they arrived in Germany, they were all put in a new Sudeten German Freikorps, and then they were sent back to Czechoslovakia. This was seen as an essential move because after they had initially left the Sudeten areas, there had been a period of calm, which was exactly what the Germans did not want, because they needed constant and consistent agitation as a pretext for their planned invasion, which by this point was only about a week away. In a somewhat humorous turn, when the new Freikorps units began to operate in Czechoslovakia, they would be almost too successful, and they were answered by the movement of large units of the Czechoslovak army into the border regions, which was also not a desirable outcome for the German plans. This resulted in another order telling them to essentially calm down a little bit, because they didn't want all these Czech troops sort of near the border when the invasion happened. While the German government was trying to appropriately manage the level of chaos in the border areas, there were also an active conversations with Hungary and Poland, who would play an important part in the upcoming negotiations. These two nations were critical because the German government planned to use them as an additional source of pressure on Czechoslovakia. To do this, they would suggest to both governments that they could do exactly what the German government was already doing. For Poland, this involved demanding the Teschen district in northern Czechoslovakia be handed over to Poland. This area had been hotly contested in the years after the First World War, and there were even some armed clashes between Czech and Polish military units during that time. Eventually, the area was awarded to Czechoslovakia by an international committee. Now the Polish government would make a demand for a new plebiscite in the region, and to add emphasis to this demand, some Polish military units were moved up to the border. The Hungarian government would make similar demands on areas of southern Czechoslovakia. These demands would arrive on September 21st, the very same day that the Czechoslovak government was being pushed into its decision on the Anglo-French agreement. They would then play an important part in the Anglo-German discussions at Bad Gottesburg, because they would be used by Hitler as an additional demand that he insisted had to be included in any agreement. Of course, during all of this time, the plans for the German invasion, which had been slated to begin on October 1st and, and was still slated to begin that day, were moving forward with additional details being sent to all of the armies that were to participate in the invasion on September 18th. In London on September 21st, there were also many discussions that would happen during a cabinet meeting held in the afternoon. The meeting was, in, in general, proceeding under the assumption that the Czechoslovak government would agree to the Anglo-French proposals, even though that agreement had not yet arrived. Because of this, the meeting would focus on what Chamberlain would say and suggest in the next meeting that he had with Hitler. News had arrived in London of the Polish and Hungarian demands, with there being the generally held belief that Hitler would almost certainly add those demands onto his own. Chamberlain did not agree with this assumption, but he did agree that if it was brought up, Chamberlain should refuse to discuss the topic at all, and if Hitler was insistent, then Chamberlain would simply relay that if, if Hitler wanted to discuss those options, he had to return to London first for consultations. In a somewhat divided cabinet, this was one of the few items that gained almost unanimous support among the members. Another important piece of the British position was that Britain, France, and Russia would all become joint guarantors of the new borders of Czechoslovakia, and that Germany would sign a non-aggression pact, and, and hopefully also join in the guarantee of the new borders. When it came to a discussion of how Chamberlain would approach his conversation with Hitler, there would be a strong group within the cabinet that urged, reiterated, 
implored, and other such words, to Chamberlain to use direct and unambiguous statements with Hitler. Statements that made it clear that the deal that was being presented was all that could be done, and if Germany did not accept it, the options in front of them was war, and and that was basically it. This pushback against any form of revision of the agreement as it existed is an important piece of information to keep in mind as the situation develops. I also mentioned last episode that there would be a trend of Chamberlain's close allies within the cabinet moving into greater opposition to his continued negotiations and their outcomes. Instead, they would begin to join with the ministers that had always been present in the cabinet who had spoken out against the course of events, some with more or less strength in their words. These changes will come back into play in some major ways once Chamberlain left for Bad Gottesburg, and meetings in the cabinet would occur without Chamberlain being present, and the British government would take actions, you know, as a result of these meetings, even though Chamberlain wasn't there. Chamberlain would be on his flight to his second meeting with Hitler at 10.45 in the morning on September 22nd. The good news for Chamberlain was that the trip was much shorter this time, and with the meeting taking place at Bad Gottesburg, which was near Cologne in northwest Germany. This meant that the plane landed just after 12.30pm. On the journey were a few secretaries, as well as the head of the legal department, the head of the central department, and an interpreter. Unlike the celebratory atmosphere that had presaged their previous meetings, on their way to the second meeting, the mood was generally more tense. Even the German charge the affairs in London noticed that the tenor of the party was very different as they arrived at the airport on September 22nd. He would inform Berlin that, quote, Chamberlain and his party have left under a heavy load of anxiety. Unquestionably, opposition is growing to Chamberlain's policy, end quote. The fact remained that he was bringing with him the confirmation from Prague that they would agree to the German demands, which meant that at least the Germans should be reasonably happy when the meeting started. After arriving at their hotel, Chamberlain would take a ferry across the Rhine to meet with Hitler at the Hotel Driesen, where the meetings would take place. The conference room was generally unremarkable, apparently, although apparently the view of the river was fantastic. Hitler was already in the meeting room when Chamberlain arrived, and both Chamberlain's and Hitler's interpreters took their places at the same table. Chamberlain, ever well prepared, would start on his prepared opening statement, which he wanted to read out in full before the conference really got going. This included a comprehensive outline of the plan that had been drafted, a lengthy description of how it had been agreed to in London, and then Paris, and then finally in Prague. Within the outline was a conversation about the usage of an international commission to determine precise boundaries, including the composition of that uh, sort of international commission. There were also details about some of the systems that would be put in place to handle those that found themselves on the side of the border that they found undesirable, and what would happen with state-owned property. All of these topics were very much the precise implementation details that Chamberlain felt were essential to nail down and essential to get German agreement to, while Hitler was, as usual, totally disinterested. It would end with the details of the international guarantees that would be provided by Britain and France, as well as the proposal for the German non-aggression pact and an invitation to join the guarantee of the new borders. This completed Chamberlain's opening statement with the clear expectation that this was all acceptable to Hitler and the German government, and things would progress nicely. The response that he received was not precisely what Chamberlain hoped for. Hitler would speak in German and then push himself back from the table, while Schmidt, his interpreter, said in English, quote, 
I'm awfully sorry, Mr. Chamberlain, but this is not possible anymore. I can no longer discuss these matters. This solution, after the developments of the last few days, is no longer practicable. In a single sentence, Hitler had completely undone all of the previous work that had been involved in so many conversations between London and Paris and Prague. Now, just because he said these things did not mean that he wanted to completely change the deal or that the conversations would end. Otherwise, we wouldn't have spent an episode and a half of the podcast discussing this deal and how it got created and accepted. But instead, Hitler would take the agreements of the other nations, which really represented a capitulation to German demands, and then increase his demands. First up was the simple fact that he wanted to massively speed up the entire timetable on the territory transfer. Or as he would say, the situation, quote, must be completely and finally solved by October the 1st at the latest. Instead of waiting for some international tribunal to determine the exact borders, he wanted a German occupation to begin at once. Obviously, he wanted to do this so that the Germans were in a position of power should an international tribunal be set up and start messing with the borders. A map would even be produced for this demand, and Hitler would say, quote, A frontier line must be drawn at once, from which the Czechs must, must withdraw any army, police, and all state organs. This area would at once be occupied by Germany. It was only after this occupation was complete that any changes or plebiscites could even be discussed, and they would also have to use the 1918 census, which was of course before Czechoslovakia even existed. Also, any Germans who had left the area since 1918 would be allowed to return to vote, even if they had not lived there for the last 20 years. Hitler also wanted the territorial demands that had been made by Hungary and Poland to be accepted. This was, of course, exactly the kind of thing that many in London had been afraid of. Hitler's alterations were also not limited strictly to additions. He did have some concerns about some of the items that had found their way into the agreement since the last time he had spoken to Chamberlain. For example, he refused to pay the Czechoslovak government for any property that was handed over to the Germans. He also refused to join in any international guarantees of the new borders. Chamberlain would reply that he was, quote, both disappointed and puzzled. He could rightfully say that the Fuhrer had got from him what he had demanded, end quote. With these new demands and, and suggested changes now on the record, the meeting broke up and Chamberlain headed back across the river to contemplate his next actions. Sir Horace Wilson, who was at Bad Gottesburg due to his close relationship with Chamberlain, would report to London that, quote, conversations today have been pretty difficult, and they were all rather exhausted. One of the major challenges that Chamberlain was laboring under at this point was the growing push from Czechoslovakia to fully mobilize its armed forces. This was something that had been close to happening during the previous meetings and had been averted, but it was a serious risk once again. It had only been pressure from London and Paris that had prevented a full mobilization in the first place, and the news from Bad Gottesburg meant that many of the leaders in London were hesitant to apply that pressure again. At 2 a.m. in the morning, news arrived in London that Chamberlain had decided to write a letter to Hitler, which would outline why, in Chamberlain's mind, his proposal simply would not work. When this letter was then delivered, the planned meetings for the morning, which were just a few hours in the future, were cancelled by the Germans without any indication of what would happen next. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? 
And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Then at 3 p.m., the German response would arrive in the form of another letter that Schmidt would deliver in person. The document was five pages long, and it had not been translated from German into English, and so Schmidt would do a bit of a live translation of what was written. One piece of the letter made it clear that Hitler was not going to accept any kind of staged or slow approach, but, quote, solely the realization of this principle, which both puts an end in the shortest time to the suffering of the unhappy victims of the Czech tyranny, and at the same time corresponds to the dignity of a great power, end quote. Overall, Chamberlain would later say that, quote, Tone was not as courteous or as considerate as one would wish, but it is worth remembering that the Germans were apt to express themselves curtly, end quote. Chamberlain, still hoping to push for a solution, sent another letter across the river which stated that he was willing to work with Hitler and his new demands, but he wanted them clearly stated in a memorandum and for a map to also be included so that there was zero ambiguity. He then planned to present these new requests to his government and begin the entire process of gaining acceptance from Prague all over again. After this somewhat conciliatory message, Ribbentrop suggested that the two leaders meet once again to discuss the contents of the memorandum in person once it was created. While Chamberlain was struggling to find some kind of reasonable and concrete position from Hitler, back in London the situation was starting to spool away from him, even if he did not yet know it. As those still in London, and particularly Halifax, who had been an important supporter of Chamberlain's tactics earlier on, got more information about the events happening at Bad Gottesburg, they were becoming more and more concerned. This concern caused them to take very real actions, which would have ramifications when Chamberlain and Hitler later met. Halifax and the others decided that they would dispatch a message to Prague, which would advise the British ambassador to officially withdraw the previous advice given to avoid mobilization. Duff Cooper, from his position at the Admiralty, would also authorize a partial mobilization of the Royal Navy, with men recalled from leave, all ships being given full crews, and 2,000 men sent to the Mediterranean to man the ships. A message would arrive in London at 9.30pm that Chamberlain and Hitler were preparing for their final meeting. Wilson would say that if it was possible to find an agreement, they would. Quote, If not, we shall come home. We are telling Prague that we are expecting a memorandum later this evening and that they may like to defer their decision until they see it when they get it tonight. End quote. This would be answered by what was the clearest statement of the growing concern among the government in London, 
with Halifax attaching his name as a point of emphasis to Chamberlain. Quote, It may help you if we give you some indication of what seems predominant public opinion as expressed in press and elsewhere. While mistrustful of our plan but prepared perhaps to accept it with reluctance as alternative to war, great mass of public opinion seems to be hardening in sense of feeling that we have gone to the limit of concession and that it is up to Chancellor to make some contribution. From point of view of your own position, that of government, and of the country, it seems to your colleagues of vital importance that you should not leave without making it plain to Chancellor, if possible by special interview, that after great concessions made by the Czechoslovak government for him to reject opportunity of peaceful solution in favor of one that must involve war would be an unpardonable crime against humanity. End quote. The final meeting at Bad Gottesburg would begin at 10.30 p.m. on September 23rd. True to their word, the memorandum and map were presented to Chamberlain, which detailed the German demands along with a new time limit. Schmidt would once again be called upon to do a bit of live translation. They demanded that Prague evacuate all military forces from the areas beginning just two days later on September 26th, and that the evacuation had to be completed in just two days. They were to take nothing with them in terms of government property. Chamberlain could not believe it, and he called the entire memorandum an ultimatum, which was pretty much exactly what it was. It was around this moment that a bit of news arrived. It was first given to Hitler, who, who read the message, and then told Schmidt to translate it for Chamberlain. It was the notification that Benesh and the Czechoslovak government had just announced a general mobilization. This had been done in a radio broadcast to the entire nation, which also involved it being done in six different languages. Roughly one million men would be mobilized over the following days. The exact thoughts of all those at the meeting were not recorded, but it could not have been far from anyone's mind that perhaps war was about to begin. Then Hitler, ever the opportunist, used the news to his advantage. He would say, quote, In spite of this provocation, this unheard of provocation, I shall keep to my undertaking not to proceed against Czechoslovakia, not to use force while these negotiations are on, at any rate while you, Mr. Chamberlain, remain on German soil. End quote. This was the perfect response, because once again it appeared to Chamberlain that Hitler was trying really hard to be reasonable. Chamberlain then sat down and started to go through the new memorandum line by line, before getting a few minor textual changes to be made, and then a short adjustment to the timeline, with the new date being October 1st, the date that Hitler had always been targeting. Once this process was complete, the meeting was over, after about, you know, three and a half hours of work. Chamberlain would then leave and go back to London. And on his arrival, he would say, quote, My first duty, now that I've come back, is to report to the British and French governments the results of my mission. And until I have done that, it will be difficult for me to say anything about it. I will only say this. I trust that all concerned will continue their efforts to solve the Czechoslovakia problem peacefully, because on that turns the peace of Europe in our time. End quote. During the meetings that then he would go into, he went through the new agreement that had been made, which took an hour as he also detailed his perceptions of the meetings in general. He would also state that he felt, quote, Herr Hitler had certain standards, he would not deliberately deceive a man who he respected and with whom he had been in negotiation, and he was sure that Herr Hitler would now felt some respect for him, end quote. The cabinet, who were the audience for this discussion, was reaching a new level of disagreement. And when Chamberlain ended his portion of the discussion, Hor Belesha, who was the minister for war, called for the army to be mobilized, and he was supported by several others. 
Duff Cooper stringently agreed, stating that the chiefs of staff were calling for mobilization, and that if it was not done, quote, we might someday have to explain why we had disregarded their advice, end quote. The conversations in the cabinet would not come to a conclusion that night, and they would be taken up again at 10.30 a.m. on September 25th. It would continue for five hours, during which conversations would be just as heated as in the previous meetings. The fact that Halifax had changed his position over the previous days and was now firmly in opposition to the new agreement provided new impetus to the resistance. This mostly led to deadlock, with no majority being possible. Eventually, Cooper would even offer his resignation, quoting, saying that, quote, continual presence in the cabinet was only a source of delay and annoyance. Chamberlain rejected this offered resignation, with there being some evidence that Cooper only offered it, knowing that it would be rejected, you know, just wanting it on the record. Even after a break for lunch, the course was already set, and there was no possibility of anyone really being convinced to change their position. Later in the evening, another meeting would occur with the French, with Daladay and Bonnet again meeting with the inner circle. One attendee would call this meeting, quote, the most painful which it has ever been my misfortune to attend. Most of this pain was apparently driven by the fact that Chamberlain's mood was not great, after having been in meetings with Hitler and then finding very little support among his cabinet earlier in the day. Daladay also did not have great news for Chamberlain, who he would inform that the French cabinet had also just rejected the new proposals and had done so unanimously. This firm rejection was based on the fact that the new belief among the French government was that Hitler's objective was, quote, to destroy Czechoslovakia by force, enslaving her, and afterwards realizing the domination of Europe, end quote. The three essential questions in Daladay's mind was whether the British would accept the proposal, whether they were willing to put pressure on Czechoslovakia that would undoubtedly be necessary to gain their acceptance, and if Chamberlain truly believed that the French should do nothing to defend its ally. Chamberlain would only agree to inform Hitler in the event of war between Czechoslovakia and Germany that France would honor its treaty commitments and Britain would enter the war in their support. With this agreement, the meeting was adjourned after a bit over two hours. Once again, the British cabinet would meet, with the first topic of discussion being a letter that would be sent to Prague immediately. It would be addressed directly from Chamberlain to Banesh, and it would say in part, quote, I feel bound to tell you, and Czechoslovak government, that the information His Majesty's government now have from Berlin makes it clear that German forces will have orders to cross Czechoslovak frontier almost immediately, unless by 2 p.m. tomorrow Czechoslovak government have accepted German demands. That must result in Bohemia being overrun, and nothing that any power can do will prevent this fate for your own country and your people. And this remains true whatever may be the ultimate issue of the possible world war. His Majesty's government cannot take responsibility of advising you what you should do, but they consider this information should be in your hands at once. End quote. At roughly the same time, a letter would also be sent to Hitler, which would state in very clear and unambiguous language that if Germany attacked Czechoslovakia, France would declare war, and if that occurred, the British government would be obliged to support them. While these messages were being delivered, in Eastern Europe, the Hungarian government was informed that if it went to war with Czechoslovakia, both Yugoslavia and Romania would declare war. In Paris, a partial mobilization would also be ordered, with the German military attaché in Paris informing his government that it was very close to a full mobilization. Europe had not been this close to the start of a war since 1914, and it looked like there was nothing that could stop it. <laughs> 